You wanted to see me, Miss Swinton? Have you been hearing about the new government modernization efforts? AI, RPAs, data science. Things are changing at this agency, and people will need new skills. Oh. I'd like you to get some training. Huh. Look at this management concepts catalog. Wow, over 275 courses. That's right, in local classrooms or instructor-led online classes. We still have budget in this fiscal year, so sign up online. Advance your career with courses from Management Concepts. Get a catalog at managementconcepts.com or call 833-578-8466. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners, so please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of the Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my but I'm walking with the dead. This week, we're bringing to you a well-known case out of the East Coast. You guys know by now that if a case does not have justice, even if it's well-known, we're going to tell it. Because a case being well-known, honestly, isn't really a reason not to tell a case on a podcast anyways. But we... Furthermore, believe that if it is a case that does not have justice, then we need to keep telling it because who knows, this particular podcast episode could be someone's first time hearing it and it could lead to something. You never know. If for nothing else, we're going to tell it for the victim's honor and to keep their story alive until justice does come. And maybe we'll even tell it again after justice comes. That's just my soapbox. Here is Natalie with the intro to today's case. Maura Murray's disappearance has captivated the worldwide true crime community for the last 17 years. Her case has been featured on 2020. It was the subject of a series on oxygen and has been featured on countless true crime podcasts. Yet despite the media coverage, the mystery remains. What happened to Maura Murray? Now, a little background on Mora. She was born on May 4th, 1982 in Brockton, Massachusetts. She was the fourth of five children belonging to Fred and Lori Murray. He was a medical technician and she was a nurse, respectively. Overall, the Murrays and their five children, these are Irish Catholics, by the way, so they have five kids. We have Fred Jr., Kathleen, Julie, Mora, and Curtis. They all lived a comfortable middle-class lifestyle with a home in a small suburb on the South Shore of Massachusetts. Her parents eventually divorced when she was six years old, and she did go to live with her mother primarily. But despite all of that, she seemed to have had a good childhood and soon turned into an accomplished young woman. Her family describes her as an overachiever and a fierce competitor with a kind heart and a beautiful dimpled smile. She excelled academically, we're talking straight A's, National Honor Society, an almost perfect score on the SATs, and she graduated at the top of her class at Whitman Hanson Regional High School. She also excelled athletically. She played basketball, she ran cross country and track, and in track specifically, 
she broke several longstanding school track records. And at one point, she was 33rd in the country. That just really shows you what an athlete this girl was. Because of her academics and her athleticism, she was heavily recruited by multiple universities, but she didn't accept any of them. Instead, she received a congressional nomination from the late Senator Ted Kennedy and decided to join her sister, Julie, at West Point. Wow. West Point is a pretty big deal. (laughs) Absolutely. This girl was the real deal. But after spending three semesters studying chemical engineering at West Point, she realized that the military lifestyle wasn't for her. So she left and transferred to the University of Massachusetts in Amherst to pursue nursing, which, I mean, she's following in her mom's footsteps. That's also another big deal. That wasn't just some loosey-goosey transfer, I'll go wherever. Um, Amherst is known to be one of the top 100 schools in the world. You add nursing on top of that, wow. So she's an achiever. Let's say that. That's so true. Now, there are a few things that happened before her disappearance. And her family says that they really have no relation to the fact that she disappeared. But I think as an independent podcast, it's our responsibility to present all the facts that we come across. And that's what I'm going to do. I think it's absolutely necessary to look at the general timeline and time frame around the time of someone's disappearance or someone's murder. It allows you to know what was going on a little bit, at least in their life and the people involved in their life and what might've been going on for them. The thing that sometimes will get me about it is that, and I'm sure many of our listeners and you as well, Natalie, can relate, is that sometimes you're looking at these things and and hindsight becomes like a thing, right? You start Mm -hmm. thinking about like, oh, well, we know that in three months they went missing. So that must mean that because they had that, it must mean that. That's an important piece, especially for a case that doesn't have justice yet to like, you know, think of theories. And if something comes up, you know, you can let people in the family know or something. They all have email addresses. And to be honest, I do want to hear you, Natalie. And I have been lucky enough to talk to a couple of people. Um, and it can be important to them. And there are, the thing they always say is that they are always willing to listen, the few that we have been lucky enough to speak with. But we also have to like exercise that caution. And in Maura's case, there are a lot of things where you're just going, oh, I wonder if than if when she went missing on that night, if this. So let's kind of take it with that grain of salt where we're just kind of like learning about the general timeline and, you know, piece it out from there. This case has so much to it is I guess why I'm kind of going on this tangent. Absolutely. And if anything, it just gives us an insight into her frame of mind the months leading up to her disappearance. Is your daily grind getting you down? A thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now, and for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. 
Imagine a vacation waiting outside your door when you get home. Discover a new way to escape the stress of everyday life. Picture soothing jets massaging your back, relieving all your aches and pains. Sleep soundly without medications or supplements. Call 1-877-861-4672 to get $1,250 in instant savings, including free delivery. Call 877-861-4672 now or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. We're now in November 2003. It's three months before her disappearance. And at this point, Maura admits to using a stolen credit card to order food from local restaurants. Fortunately for her, charges were to be dismissed after three months if she maintained good behavior. Now, fast forward once again to the evening of February 5th, 2004. Maura's working at her campus security job, and it's pretty late in the evening, around 10.30 p.m. She gets a call from her older sister, Kathleen, who is having relationship problems with her fiance. And this conversation seemed to really weigh heavily on Mora, so much so that her supervisor arrived at her desk and could see that Mora was completely zoned out and had no reaction whatsoever. In fact, the supervisor describes Mora as unresponsive. It's a really interesting descriptor. Just after a phone call with a sister. That's what I thought too. And it seems to have affected Maura so much that the supervisor ended up escorting Maura back to the dorm room around 1.20 a.m. And again, the supervisor is just trying to figure out what's going on. And she asks, what was wrong? Maura only gives two words and says, my sister. The contents of this call really remained unknown until October of 2017. And it's at this time that Kathleen lets, you know, everyone know that the conversation was about Kathleen, who was a recovering alcoholic. She had just been released from rehab. And on the way home from rehab, her fiance had taken her to a liquor store. Was this unknown to only the public for 13 years? Or did law enforcement also not know about the contents of this phone call until 2017? You know, that's really unclear from all the resources I've looked at. Shocker. I mean, that's the name of the game with True Crime Podcasts. There's only so much information out there on every case that we do, but we try our best and, you know, we piece together what we can. We didn't know until we had a podcast, but what Natalie said is so true. With that in mind, we're going to jump ahead two days. It's now Saturday, February 7th. Mora's father, Fred, arrives in Amherst, which is where she's going to college. He arrived because Mora's black 1996 Saturn sedan needed repairs and he had told her not to be driving it. So he wanted to take her car shopping instead. They didn't get anything, but after that, they went to dinner with one of her friends and following dinner, she took him back to the motel. But she didn't stay in for the night. Instead, she took his Toyota Corolla and returned to the campus to attend a dorm party. From what I remember about this case, her dad was pretty involved with this whole kind of car saga she had going on. And he'd even stuffed like a rag up like a tailpipe or something like that. I'm not 100% on all of this. I'm not like referencing a resource, but I do know that, yeah, he was very involved and he did that for some reason and that you weren't supposed to drive it once the rag was like up there or something. It's like a really controversial thing with this darn case. Yes, you're right on the money. He absolutely stuck a rag up the tailpipe and 
it was his way of fixing whatever problem temporarily. Yeah, it was basically just to hold the car over. And then, like you mentioned, now they're going to go car shopping. Right. And then dinner with her friend. And here we are. Here we are. She's driving his car. She goes to a dorm party. She's there from 10.30 p.m. and leaves around 2.30 a.m., which is now Sunday, February 8th. She's on the road for about an hour trying to get back to the dad's motel. And on her way there, she struck a guardrail on Route 9 in Hadley. This one car collision caused somewhere between $8,000 and $10,000 worth of damage, which really gives you an idea of how bad of a hit it was. And that's 2004 money. Mm -hmm. An officer responds to the accident, but there's no documentation of a field sobriety test being conducted and no tickets are issued. Despite the extensive amount of damage the car got, she was able to drive it back to her father's motel, which is where she stayed the rest of the night. The following day, Sunday, her father, Fred, contacts the insurance company and does as much as he can for a Sunday and rents a car. He drops her back off at the college campus and drives home to Connecticut, which is where he lives at the time. That night, around 11.30 p.m., he calls Maura once again, and he reminds her, don't forget to get the DMV paperwork. You know, we need to get all this paperwork done, send it to the, to the insurance, whatever. After that, they agree to talk again Monday night, the following night, and um, handle the rest of the insurance claim. It's now Monday, February 9th, around midnight. Maura's using her computer in her dorm room. She pulls up MapQuest for directions to the Berkshires and Burlington, Vermont, which is, as we now know, where her car is eventually found. Right. A few hours later, she has what is reported to be the first contact that she's had with anyone that day. Around 1 p.m., she emails her boyfriend. She tells him, I love you more, stud. I got your messages, but honestly, I didn't feel like talking too much to anyone. I promise to call you, though. Love you, Mora. She also made a phone call inquiring about renting a condo at the same association in Bartlett, New Hampshire, that her family had vacationed at in years prior to this event. And telephone records indicate that the call lasted some, somewhere around three minutes. For whatever reason, the owner didn't end up renting to Mora, but this still plays a role in her story. So keep that in mind. In fact, her father, in hindsight, has said he thinks that's why she was on Route 112 because it connects Route 16 and Route 302 in the direction of Bartlett, which is where those condos were. He told a publication, it's a road to Bartlett, which I'm sure she was going. She knows it like her backyard. We were in New Hampshire so much, at least four times a year. She was up there every year of her life. I think many of us have that place with our families right? It's that place where it's almost more than just a vacation, like a home away from home, it sounds like. Yes. Later that same day, Mora submits her nursing homework electronically and then reportedly emails her professors. And these emails really wig out everyone that hears about this case. She tells her professors that there's been a death in her family and that she wouldn't be able to attend classes for at least a week, but she would contact them when she returned. But here's the kicker. There wasn't a death in her family. Her family has no idea why she would say this, but she did. 
this just seems so indicative of somebody who was just really trying to get some get some space, kind of get away, go somewhere, but also was kind of buttoning it up before they left and just seems by all intents and purposes that they would be coming back, right? Keeping everything in line before they just took a quick vacation, for example, which is exactly what her dad is also saying it seemed like she was setting up to go do. That's so funny that you say that because I had that same train of thought. She didn't Mm -hmm. drop out of school. Right. She's not ending her relationship with her boyfriend. She's telling them, hey, I'll talk to you later. Or she's telling the school, I'll be back. I just, I need a break. I need some time to gather my thoughts. And nursing school is no joke and everybody deserves a break. And sometimes the only way out of it is to tell your professor that someone passed in your family and you're going to go have a nice three-day weekend and you're going to come back nice and refreshed. Exactly. There is one more interesting thing about Mora's disappearance, or at least her time before the disappearance. For some unknown reason, she packed up all of her belongings in her dorm room and left behind a personal note to her boyfriend. Some resources say fiance, but on the family's website for Mora says boyfriend. So that's what I'm going to go with. Definitely. Here on the Murder Diaries, we like to go by what the family says as much as possible when it comes to cases like Mora's. At 2.18 p.m., she calls her boyfriend, leaves a voicemail, and promises to talk to him later. And the call ends after a minute. The next day, which I'm jumping a little ahead in the timeline, so I'm going to come back, but just I think it belongs here. The next day, the boyfriend receives a call that he believes was from Mora. Uh, She didn't say anything, but he could hear breathing. And he had no idea why she would be acting so bizarre, but this phone call has always stuck with him. At 3.15 p.m., she is all packed up. She's in her car that she's not supposed to be driving, by the way. Right. With the rag in the tailpipe, if you remember. But she's driving it. She goes to an off-campus ATM and withdraws $280, which is almost all of the money she had in her account. She then stops at a liquor store and purchases about $40 worth of alcohol, including Bailey's Irish Cream, Kahlua, vodka, and a box of Franzia wine. There's security footage that shows she was alone and she made the purchase all by herself. This is one of those moments where we were talking about a little bit ago when it comes to like hindsight, right? We know Mora disappears. So now we're wondering, well, why did she take all the money out of her bank account? You know, like what was going on in this very moment? Could it have something to do with it? And of course it can be tempting and we have fleeting thoughts about what it might all mean, but all we can really do is take it for exactly what Natalie was saying, which is she took this money out of her bank account and then she went and bought some alcohol. That's all we can do with it, even though it's so easy to start getting into a bunch of different theories. You're so right. At the end of the day, all of that just ends up being speculation. There's a few things that we know and that's it. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful soothing jets and all your stress seems to melt away like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. 
Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. She packed up her things. She bought alcohol. She withdrew all her money and she ended up picking up the DMV paperwork she promised her dad she would. After that, she headed to New Hampshire. She did apparently use her cell phone to check her voicemail around 4.37 p.m. And that's the last recorded use of her cell phone. For younger listeners, back in the day when you wanted to check your voicemail, you would call your phone number to be able to do that. Then cell phones started getting these little voicemail buttons that you could hit and it would like auto dial your number. But either way, you had to make a phone call to check your voicemail. It's not like on your iPhone today where it's sitting there transcribed for you, ready to press play. I also want to connect on the another thing you were talking about, which is when you were mentioning that she went ahead and picked up that paperwork that her dad told her to from the DMV. This is another one of those moments where we see that Mora is keeping in line with what needs to be done in life, but is maybe going somewhere before it's truly finalized. By all means, she was most likely intending to get that paperwork to her dad or to the insurance company, whoever needed it. You're right. Why would she go out of her way to go get the paperwork if she wasn't intending to return? But the weird side to all of it is that she didn't tell anyone what her plans were or why she was going to New Hampshire. She just packed up and left. That's the piece that totally doesn't make sense. Now it's around 7.27 p.m. that same night. Journalist Joe McGee, who wrote for the Quincy, Massachusetts Patriot Ledger, summarized the incident perfectly. So I'm going to read what he wrote. At a hairpin turn, she went off the road. Her car hit a tree. At that point, a person came along who was driving a bus. It was a neighbor. He asked her if she needed help. She refused. About 10 minutes later, police showed up to the scene and Maura Murray was gone. Her father, Fred, believes that her car stalled when she was going around a turn and went into a snowbank. He also believes that she was heading towards Bartlett, New Hampshire, which I had mentioned earlier was an area she knew really well and an area she had been to several times throughout her life because that's where they vacationed. Now, I mentioned the bus driver, but there's also a resident of Haverhill, New Hampshire, who I don't know if she saw the accident, but she did see the car stalled out on the road. So she called the police and notified them that there had been an accident near her home and that a car was stuck in a ditch. She acknowledged that it was a minor crash, but um, you know maybe they should come out and check everything. There are photographs of the car and she's right. It, it seems to not have been too bad, but the front end of the car is banged up by the headlights and probably wouldn't have been drivable because the airbags had gone off. Got it. Now we're going to talk a little more about the bus driver. His name was Butch Atwood. He had been driving by and is actually the last known person to have spoken to Mora. He stopped when he had seen her car stalled in, the, in a snowbank and offered her help. He asked her if she needed him to call the police and she declined the offer. She actually had responded that she had already called AAA. But he knew that wasn't true because there wasn't cell service in the area. As a result, he drove his bus home, which is about 100 yards away, and called the police around 7.42 p.m. I feel like this says a lot about him. 
Now, of course, we could assume many things as us true crime consumers do. But this to me actually says a lot. This is a man who said, I know this person needs help. Mm -hmm. Maybe they were a little bit afraid of being alone with me, a man, or whatever his thought process may be. But for 2004, this is pretty big. He saw a young woman that probably needed help and that he knew maybe lied about having called AAA and Mm -hmm. went ahead and called police for help. He had an intuition about the situation. I just feel like that's really telling. And I know there's different theories, um, Mm -hmm. good and bad, but I just want to mention that because it's something that hits me when I hear about this part of the story. Now, when the operator asked if she appeared injured, Butch Atwood told the police that she appeared shaken up And like I had mentioned, the airbags deployed, but there wasn't any blood. She didn't appear to be visibly injured, but it was cold and she was shivering. The first police officer arrived on scene at 7.46 p.m. Now, that's four minutes after the 911 call was placed. And in that small window of time, from Butch leaving to call 911 and the police arriving, Mora disappeared. And it makes you wonder... What happened in those four minutes? What could have happened? Especially when you no longer have an operable car. And that's the first thing that police realized when they arrived at the scene. They found her car locked and facing the opposite direction from where she had been driving. There was no trace of her and no tracks leading into the woods. But she had left personal items in the car. But her phone and credit cards were missing. So it was assumed that she had them with her. She also had a backpack and some alcohol in it. I want to talk really quickly about the car and the fact that it was locked. This was a 1996 vehicle. So if it did indeed have the automatic locks, then when you turn the car off, you take the keys out you hit lock inside the car and then shut your door. It's why we all used to like lock ourselves out of our cars because Mm -hmm. you could lock your keys inside the car. You can't usually do that with most cars today because your fob will recognize it's in the car. That didn't used to be the case. So this just shows that it was really an intentional lock because you could also accidentally leave your car unlocked all the time if you're kind of spacey or have just gone through a little bit of trauma, like a big car accident. So to me, it's just really telling and means something to me. I don't know how else to term it, that this car was locked. I'm so glad you brought that up because she actually did leave a few things in her car. She left textbooks, her running shoes, and changes of clothing. This tells me that she was planning on returning. She didn't want her stuff to be gone when she came back. The officers also noted that there was a box of red wine behind the driver's seat, as well as stains on the ceiling and door. There was also a Coke bottle that appeared to have a red liquid in it, but it was it's never been said in any of these documents that it was blood, just that it was red liquid. So I'll leave that for you to run away with your imagination. Now we have a locked car with personal belongings inside it and a possibly shaken up young woman who's nowhere to be seen. The officer asks the bus driver, Butch, to aid him in locating Mora and suggests that he drive west of the accident scene and search some of the roads in the French Pond area. And I'm so 
grateful for this, but in our pre-meeting, Paige actually pulled up the French Pond area and we looked it up on Google Maps and we kind of drove down the roads and it's a very, there are still houses, but they're so spaced out. There's a lot of greenery and trees, no sidewalks. It's very easy for you to get disoriented, especially when it's late and snowing. It's pretty dense forest in this entire area and then smaller areas of clearing and then it's dense again. Mm -hmm. Now, the police officer and Butch weren't the only ones on the scene. A state trooper responded and he searched the roads west of the accident site and fire and EMS also arrived, but they soon left when there wasn't anyone to treat. Firefighters did search the accident scene before going back to the fire station, but they didn't find anything. And as far as anyone is aware, not one person searched east of the accident site. Eventually, police traced the vehicle to Mora and initially treated her as a missing persons case. They assumed this was a young woman who voluntarily left, and that was that. They contacted her family the following day, and that was the last thing that her family was expecting to hear about her. They were shocked and confused. And this eventually led into chaos and a panic for them. Why was Maura in New Hampshire on a Monday night by herself? Was she running away from her life or looking for a reprieve to clear her head? Did she disappear to start a new life? These are all things that they're wondering. And This speculation was based on her travel preparations that I had mentioned previously, the packed boxes, the artwork off her walls, the ATM withdrawal of all her money. Right. It's not a far off theory. It is something that they have to hold as a possibility. Because there's no evidence of foul play and no real leads, the case eventually goes cold. In 2009, her case is given to the New Hampshire Cold Case Division and they start handling it as a suspicious missing persons case because things just aren't adding up. The Haverhill Police, New Hampshire Police, and Mora's family all extensively search the site and the surrounding area in the days and weeks and years that follow the night of her disappearance. But like I said, it, it's February and it was snowing at the time. And it, it makes you wonder how much of that evidence was wiped away by the weather. Snow is definitely not a friend to evidence. It can damage evidence. If it's a footprint or something like that, that's really telling, it's going to melt away. It's just not the best weather condition for evidence. No, it's not. But that didn't stop the Murray family. They continuously drove the 150 miles between Hanson, which is where they lived, and Haverhill, you know, to look for her. One of her sisters actually mentions that they looked in all of Mora's favorite spots. Remember, this is a place that they had gone to growing up multiple times a year, all of her life. They knew the area like her own backyard and like the back of their hands. And they know that she has specific spots that she liked. And even in those places, there was no evidence of Mora. And that led to more questions. Did she meet someone local to the area? Did she run into someone she knew from previous vacations out there? We don't know. That's the thing with this case. It seems to be made up of questions without answers. Her boyfriend, Bill Roush, flew in from Oklahoma to aid in the search. 
there were flyers posted everywhere from Haverhill and into Vermont. And there was a $40,000 reward offered for tips leading to a break in the case. And it was crickets. There was nothing coming forward. Until a few months later, when a witness came forward and claimed that he had seen someone who matched Mora's appearance walking along Route 112 about an hour after her accident. He explained that he hadn't come forward initially because he didn't realize it was the same day that he had seen this woman as her crash. But, you know, as news had covered the the case and her disappearance, he put two and two together and decided that it was the right thing to do and call in. And even though this tip came in, the police didn't really do much with it, which infuriated Fred Murray. And rightfully so. This is his daughter. She's missing and the police didn't look into it. The search had only been conducted to the west of the crash site, like I mentioned, and not to the east, which is where Route 112 was. So it was a real possibility in his mind that his daughter was at least headed in that direction on that fateful night. There's a couple quotes from him and I'm going to read them here. And him is Fred Murray, not the uh, tipster. This was a young woman involved in an accident. She had a head injury by the indication of the spider hole in the windshield. They know she is somewhere close by and they don't go down the road to bring her to safety. If they had searched for my daughter, she would most likely be safely here now. You know, you've got to give it to him. He's not hiding how he feels about the search for Mora and how it was handled, or at least at the time of that quote, how he felt about what was going on and the attempts to find his daughter. Honestly, Fred has been her biggest advocate in the 17 years since her disappearance. And, you know, there have been other people, her sisters and her brothers are all searching for her, but her dad has not given up hope. In fact, every spring since her disappearance, a private group searches the woods near the crash site, but they have never found any sign of Mora. With the time that has passed, her family has begun to realize that she may have met with foul play. And several things reinforce this theory for the family. There was a scent dog that lost Mora's scent right off the road, which indicates that she may have gotten into a vehicle. There's been no activity on her credit cards or phone in the 17 years, and nothing was found in the woods, not keys, not her credit card, not her backpack, or the bottles of alcohol. And she's never, not once, reached out to any of the family. This includes when her mother passed away from cancer, and her siblings and father know that if she had been around, regardless of starting a new life or whatever the theories are out there, she would have reached out, and that just didn't happen. Instead, her father believes that because she was in the middle of nowhere with no place to go due to the damaged car, she may have accepted a ride from a stranger. And that stranger may have taken advantage of her and killed her. Years pass and the tensions between the Murray family and the police department continue to grow. It's now 2005 and they're upset with the lack of progress in the case and who can blame them. Fred Murray doesn't take this sitting down, though. He petitions, suggesting that the state police department's refusal to release the 2,500 documents in her file pertaining, you know, about her case was illegal. 
because if they weren't going to investigate, he wanted to, but he was denied. Again, he challenges the ruling and it's sent to the New Hampshire Supreme Court. In 2006, the court ruled in favor of the police department. They justified this by saying that it is still an active missing persons investigation and the release of any documents could jeopardize a future prosecution. They're not wrong, but it is harmful to the family. Absolutely. And I think the police department realized that Fred Murray and his family wasn't going to go anywhere without any new information. As a result, they released some information to Fred and the rest of the family, but the bulk of the documents were heavily redacted and almost entirely useless. So they kind of did it to shut him up. That's how I saw it. It's exactly what it feels like. But this didn't stop the Murray family from conducting their own searches. In fact, there's actually a new search that led them to a basement in a home along Route 112. And this basement stood out to them for a very interesting reason. Two different and very respected cadaver dogs showed interest in this area on two separate occasions with two different handlers. What does that tell you? That something isn't right here. Ground penetrating radar was used and it showed an anomaly or a disturbance underneath the cement, possibly indicating a body had been buried. In April of 2019, just two years ago, a team of a dozen FBI agents and detectives finally agreed to excavate the location. They searched several feet around and below the disturbed ground, but they didn't find anything except piping and some old pottery. And this was just devastating to Fred and the rest of the family. But they never gave up hope. And they continue to keep her story alive online through their own website, moramurray.com. It's family run and it was launched on her 38th birthday. Wow, so they just launched that because 2020 marked her 38th birthday. Yes, and this year actually marked her 17th anniversary of the disappearance. Her younger brother, Curtis, held a candlelight vigil for her at the same place she was last seen. And he's quoted as saying, it's kind of crazy to think it's 17 years. I've spent more of my life without Mora than with her. And that really gets me in the feels. I have goosebumps. Same. Her sister also says, I truly believe someone has a missing piece to this puzzle and maybe they don't even know it. And I think that really goes back to what you had said at the beginning of this episode, Paige. Mm -hmm. Mora doesn't have justice. Her family doesn't have justice. The people of New Hampshire and Massachusetts don't have justice. The true crime community doesn't have justice on behalf of Mora. This story needs to be told. And I think the more ears that hear it, there's a chance that someone, a light goes off in their head and they realize that they have the piece of information that could help. And that brings this episode to a close. You know, this case, Maura Murray's disappearance is still an open investigation. It's still an active missing persons case. If you or anyone you know has any information about it, contact the New Hampshire Cold Case Unit. You can call them at 6 Zero three, two seven one, two six six three, or visit their website. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries Pod on Instagram, at the Murder Diaries Pod at gmail.com, 
and the Murder Diaries Podcast.com. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free to play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.